Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. express my gratitude for the opportunity to share this evening, especially with our Good Shepherd, Your Excellency, Bishop Monforton, Father President, Father Sheridan, who, as you might know, has a certain expertise in the area of ex corde ecclesia, having written his doctorate in canon law on that particular subject, and such a great and auspicious moment for us to celebrate the 25th anniversary of this amazing gift under his leadership here at Franciscan University. I'd like to divide up the time this evening by focusing first upon the new evangelization and what it means, and then to address the question of how it fits into Catholic higher education, and then finally reflect upon how it has worked out here at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Now, the new evangelization has been around for a long time. Since St. John Paul II came to America in 83 and announced that this was going to be the highest priority, and he issued an encyclical in the year 1990, Redemptoris Missio, which has been nicknamed the Magna Carta of the New Evangelization, in which he identified this priority in the following terms, He said, I sense that the moment has come to commit all of the church's energies to the new evangelization. No believer in Christ, no institution of the church can avoid this supreme duty to proclaim Christ to all peoples. That same year, Ex Cordia Ecclesia was promulgated, 1990. And they are not unrelated. In fact, they're inseparably connected to the pontifical vision, as well as the church's mission. And not just for St. John Paul II, but also for Pope Benedict and now Pope Francis. And you can even look back retrospectively and see that the grandfather of the new evangelization was himself, blessed Paul VI, who emphasized evangelization like nobody before him and traveled around making apostolic journeys to continents like no successor to Peter had ever done. Back in the 90s, there was a lot of speculation about what the meaning of the new evangelization was. What is so new about this thing? And they used the expression that it is new in ardor, method, and expressions, quoting John Paul. But it struck a lot of people like it was so much ecclesiastical jargon, a sort of rhetorical device. In fact, it was anything but. One theologian who began to pick up on the significance of this, somewhat surprisingly, was the late Avery Cardinal Dallas. A biography of his work was recently published by a a professor that I had at Marquette, Patrick Carey, entitled Avery Cardinal Dallas, a model theologian. Dallas is noted for his conversion to the church back in the 50s while a student at Harvard, while his father was serving as Secretary of State in the Eisenhower administration. He went on to distinguish himself in many areas. But the last 10 years of his life, he died in in 2008 at the age of 90. The last 10 years of his life, his biographer, 
Dr. Carey points out, Cardinal Dallas paid special attention to the new evangelization. In fact, he described this papal turn, as he put it, as one of the most surprising and important developments in the Catholic Church since Vatican II. In fact, he said it is a comprehensive term that gives us an overriding vision and a lens for interpreting the documents of Vatican II. And on frequent occasions, he would address bishops and theologians, as well as university leaders, calling them to recognize the uniqueness of this comprehensive term, this overriding vision, this all-inclusive concept, which he also described as, quote, the most effective remedy for the church's present ills. That it was calling the faithful to share the faith and to discover that you don't really enjoy it as much as when you see it reproducing fruit in others' lives. But he pointed out that the new evangelization was new because it wasn't just about personal repentance. It wasn't just about individual conversion. Drawing extensively from the writings of Pope John Paul II, he pointed out that it builds on that through catechesis and religious education at all levels, but it also draws people into ecumenism and interreligious dialogue. It also is ordered to social and cultural transformation, or what John Paul frequently referred to as the evangelization of culture. It's sort of like what's not included in the new evangelization. And indeed, all of life is deliberately included under this great umbrella of the new evangelization, Dallas said, because all of life is under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And this is something that Vatican II sort of recaptures, and that is the Christocentric vision of the gospel for all nations. Now, this, of course, resonated with, with everything that John Paul was saying at the time and developing through the decade of the 90s. Just parenthetically, a lot of us thought that the decade of the 90s was the decade of the new evangelization. He used the term well over 100 times. But in the next five years, from 2000 to 2005, he used it over 200 times. But he never once referred to the 90s as the decade of the new evangelization. What he did refer to it as was the Advent season of the new evangelization, which sort of implies an analogy, because we all know what Advent season is. It's the first four Sundays of the liturgical calendar, but after that is over, what remains are 48 more Sundays. And so when the decade of the 90s was over, the new evangelization was not done and had barely begun. This was not a short-term strategy. It wasn't a sprint. It was more like a marathon. And Cardinal Dallas understood this and was calling educators, bishops, as well as theologians to allow Catholic theology to be renewed in this spirit. I appreciate that because in 2002, he came to our campus, was awarded an honorary doctorate, and spoke at our graduate baccalaureate and focused so much of what he said about the new evangelization and the unique role of the Catholic University, but specifically Franciscan University. We got to spend some time after he was done, before he took off, and he was so encouraging and not just to me personally, but to the whole university, which he was still in the process of discovering. He described Vatican II on that occasion. He described the new evangelization on that occasion as sort of the realization of aggiornamento, which was that key term that was used so often back in the 60s at the time of the Second Vatican Council, which represents a kind of 
renewal, an updating, an opening of the church to the world, not so that the floods of secularization could come into the church, but that the living water of the gospel might go out and bring grace to all peoples. So what is new about the new evangelization? Well, very clearly, John Paul set forth the idea that the old evangelization has never ceased, and that is initial evangelization, that is initial proclamation when you share Jesus with those who've never heard the Christian message. Whereas the new evangelization is new precisely because of the new necessity that we see with the secularization of so much of Western culture. So as he would put it, the new evangelization is all about re-evangelizing the de-Christianized. That was it. So you're not only baptizing those who you have evangelized, which the church has been doing for 2,000 years, you're also evangelizing those who have been baptized, but also secularized, and who have been progressively de-Christianized by the secular culture. This culture of death, the new atheism, the dictatorship of relativism, this is why it was not just about initial conversion of individuals, it's about an ongoing conversion and an evangelization of culture. What I would propose is what John Paul came back to again and again. This not only deepens our understanding of what evangelization means, it also deepens our understanding of what conversion entails. And consequently, a third category that I want to consider is that it makes us rethink what formation requires, which is an important part, of course, of the Catholic University. So it's every Christian, as John Paul said. It's not just the clergy. It's not just the missionaries. In fact, it's not just foreign missionary, mission work. It is directed at cultures which have become increasingly secularized. And this is not just John Paul's message. It's also what Pope Benedict repeatedly said. For example, in Verbum Domini, he said, many of our brothers and sisters are baptized but insufficiently evangelized. Nations once rich in faith are losing their identity under the influence of a secularized culture. The need for the new evangelization so deeply felt by my venerable predecessor, John Paul, must be valiantly reaffirmed in the certainty that God's word is effective. And so that's when Pope Benedict established a new dicastery in the Roman Curia, the Congregation for the Promotion of the New Evangelization, which now Pope Francis has taken on to the next level. So evangelization is not just a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just accepting Jesus as my Savior and Lord. It calls for something much longer, much deeper. And so this is where we have to distinguish evangelization in the Catholic tradition from evangelization in many non-Catholic, Protestant, and fundamentalist practices. Because in that sector of Christendom, Evangelization usually entails an initial proclamation of four basic truths. God loves you, you've sinned, Jesus died for that, and now you must choose to believe. Of course, we wouldn't disagree with any of those. But by the time you've gotten through the so-called four spiritual laws and made a decision and said the prayer, you are now saved. You are now in a personal relationship with Jesus, which is a great place for anybody to be as far as Catholics are concerned. But it's not the end game. It's not the goal. It's actually the first part of evangelization. And this is where the Catholic tradition banks upon the old evangelization. Because going back to the ancient church, you can see that a personal relationship is not where you ended, but where you started. So initial evangelization would lead to initial conversion. And the grace of conversion is what made you a convert 
And that personal relationship was followed up by enrolling in the catechumenate, where you didn't just learn the four spiritual laws or the kerygma, you learned how to pray, you learned how to fast, you learned the creed, the petitions of the Our Father, you underwent scrutinies and the vigils, and all of it went into months and months of preparation for something even greater. Because after you're evangelized and then catechized, you are baptized, confirmed, you receive Holy Communion. So this three-stage process is certainly about a personal relationship, but it most ultimately ends up in a covenantal relationship. Why? Because it is akin to courtship, falling in love, engagement, where you discover the, the future spouse's family will be your own, and you, you discover all the commitments that are entailed, and then finally, it's marriage itself as a sacrament. This is the model of evangelization in the Catholic tradition. When you stop evangelizing and you start catechizing, it is as though the good news ceases. If anything, the message of the evangel goes to the next level. And likewise, when you move to the second to the third stage and you're sacramentalizing people, it's though you have the gospel in high definition. So evangelizing just goes from one level to the next. The good news never ceases to be internalized. But of course, after you've been baptized, confirmed, and received Holy Communion, this does not end the process of conversion. This is where the Catholic tradition also has one of the most distinctive contributions that has gone largely overlooked in theological discussion. The theology of conversion that matches the depth of the theology of evangelization. The Catechism echoes this in paragraph 1229. For becoming a Christian is accomplished as a journey in several stages in which certain essential elements have to be present. The first stage is proclamation of the word and acceptance of the gospel and telling initial conversion. The second stage is the profession of faith, the creed, the Our Father, learning to pray. Then the third stage is baptism itself, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and admission to Eucharistic communion, referring to the sacramentalized stage. But it goes on to say this in paragraph 1231, that infant baptism requires a post-baptismal catechumenate. And no wonder, because the infants who are baptized, like most of us, didn't undergo initial evangelization or initial conversion. We didn't undergo the catechesis that taught us the Lord's Prayer and the Creed and all the rest of the scriptures in salvation history. And so we were baptized. It's almost analogous, I suppose, to an arranged marriage where you have to kind of get to know someone after the sacramental mystery and fall in love. And so the need is great today, not only because of the need for this post-baptismal catechumenate, but also because of what we could almost characterize as the new devangelization, which has been taking place for decades over the course of the 20th century into the present time. So conversion is something much more than just that personal relationship, getting saved, inviting Jesus into your heart as beautiful and as true and wonderful as that is. The Catechism is also clear in paragraph 1426 that after baptism, you still have the struggle to overcome the weakness of human nature, and the struggle of Christian life is the struggle of conversion. In the next two paragraphs, the Catechism goes on to echo this great and deep tradition that the second conversion is an uninterrupted task for the whole church and for each individual Christian throughout their whole life. So conversion is something that is not over and done in the past. It's ongoing. It's ever deepening. 
And it never gets easy. As we know from Luke 9.23, Jesus said, if anyone would take up, anyone would follow me, he must take up his cross every day and follow me. He doesn't say take up your rosary or your scapular as wonderful as those, those gifts are. But the cross is always going to require a grace of ongoing, ever-deepening and lifelong conversion. And this again taps into a tradition that we know so well because the notion of second conversion as interrupted and uninterrupted and lifelong also reminds us of the whole spiritual tradition of the three ages of the spiritual life. The purgative stage, and then the illuminative stage, followed by the unitive stage, which anybody in a religious community would know from all of the extensive spiritual direction they received. But in fact, since Vatican II has clearly affirmed the universal call to holiness, it's not just for the clergy and the religious, it's also for the laity. So it's not just in the monastery, it's also in the university. It's not just interior for the monks and the nuns, it's also something that has to be interiorized in us. More recently, the compendium of the Catholic Church's teaching and social doctrine emphasizes this as well. And this fits into where we are as a university. In section 64, we read in the compendium, the supernatural is not to be understood as a place that begins where the natural ends, but as the raising of the natural to a higher plane. In this way, nothing of the created order is foreign to or excluded from the supernatural. Rather, it is found within it, taken on and elevated by it. Nothing that concerns the human community, justice, freedom, development, peace, is foreign to evangelization. Therefore, an evangelization would be incomplete if it did not take into account the mutual demands continually made by the gospel. The compendium goes on in paragraph 523 to describe this. The contemporary world is marked by a rift between the gospel and culture, by a secularized vision of society. The church is aware that she must take a giant step forward in her evangelization and enter into a new stage of history in her missionary dynamism. This is strong language. It's not hyperbolic. It's not exaggerated. It's just recognizing that when you face a crisis as grave as the one we face, we must find the grace to overcome it. Now, at this point, I want to just bring up the question of how does the new evangelization fit into Catholic higher education? Because when you think about Catholic colleges and universities, what doesn't come immediately to mind is evangelization. And in fact, we've got to be forthright on this point because a Catholic university is not the same thing as a parish. A Catholic university is not the same thing as a retreat center. A Catholic university is not the same thing as an evangelistic association. A Catholic university exists for the purpose of higher education the integration of faith and reason, time and eternity, all of creation, all of the disciplines, psychology, sociology, biology and chemistry, nursing and medicine, law and politics, economics, literature, arts, the languages, journalism and beyond. All of this is an essential part of what it means for a community of students and teachers to come together to grow intellectually. And so where in the world does evangelization fit into the job description of any institution of Catholic higher learning. It isn't self-evident. 
I would propose, however, that once we grasp the inner logic of the new evangelization and see how expansive it is and how bold of a vision, precisely because of how great the challenge that we face, once we also come to understand the need for a conversion that it goes beyond the initial prayer, the initial decision, the initial experience of a personal relationship with Jesus or being saved, once we recognize that conversion is ongoing, it's ever deepening, it's lifelong, it's not just interior, it's also exterior, it's not just private, it's public, it's not just spiritual, it's social, it's not just for Theo and cat majors, it's for econ majors, it's for everyone in the whole curriculum. It's not just taking place in the confessional, it's taking place in the classroom. It's not just the professors though, it's also them becoming mentors for their students. It's not just to get a major and then a diploma and then a job, it's to develop nothing less than a Catholic worldview, a Weltanschung, if you will. And when we see that the demands of Catholic higher education coincide with the new evangelization and the need for this sort of integral evangelization, this integral conversion, and thus this integral formation, I would propose to you, however counterintuitive it might seem, that there is perhaps no other institution within the church as perfectly suited to advance the church's mission of the new evangelization as a Catholic university. Why? Because it's not just for the clergy and the religious, it's for the laity. It's not just happening in monastic cells, it's happening in the classroom. It's not just ordered toward prayer, it's also ordered toward study. But even that, it's not just academic, there's something profoundly apostolic about the formation we receive here, because it doesn't just take place during the lectures in the classroom, it takes place in the office hours. It takes place when you see your professors in daily mass, or at Kroger's, or you might go to the visit their home, or whatever. This sort of thing is more than information, it's inspiration. It's more than just motivation, it is that integral formation that takes you beyond four years into a lifetime of faithfulness and intellectual growth. And so I would propose that a school like ours exemplifies the model of a Catholic university uniting with the church's vision of the new evangelization because it involves teaching but also mentoring. It involves education but even more integral formation. We are not just to equip students, we are to raise up scholars, but not just scholars but saints. But in the process, we can't use our faith as an excuse to be lazy. We can't use our devotion as an excuse to shirk the hard work that goes into academic study that is by its nature rigorous. The integration of faith and culture, the integration of the natural and the supernatural, the human and the divine, the integration of the liberal arts and sciences under the light of faith, none of this is going to come easily, but all of it will come in a community of scholars who work with their students in a way that is truly formative, but also transformative. Now, I want to just speak personally for a moment because from my own experience, I experienced, I had mentors. I remember in high school, after experiencing the grace of a young adult conversion around the age of 14, I had somebody who was beyond a youth minister. He just took me under his wing, he taught me scripture, he taught me theology. At the time, it was all from Martin Luther and John Calvin, but I don't begrudge him for that. He trained me to grow both spiritually and intellectually. And now we ended up going to seminary together, 
and he has a PhD from Harvard. He's the president of the American Academy of Religion, and we're very close friends even still. What a blessing to have a mentor like that in high school. But when I went to college, it went to the next level. I had teachers who took me under wing, and not just me, but others too. And that mentoring process transformed my understanding. And that's why I ended up with philosophy as well as theology and economics, so that I could have an integrated vision of what this world is under God, and at the same time, what it is under the light of human reason. And then the seminary, it just went to the next level. But when I was going off to Milwaukee to study at Marquette in order to become a Catholic, I couldn't wait to find the next set of mentors, but in fact, I didn't really find any. Now, the Jesuits are experts at preparing novices, you know, and giving the spiritual direction that goes into more than a decade of formation before you're ordained a Jesuit priest. But for whatever reason, back in the mid-80s, students who went to this school, and I know of others who went to other schools, they didn't experience what I had in the evangelical environment, and that was spiritual fathering, a kind of mentoring that went beyond the classroom, it went beyond instruction. So when I got here, I must admit, <laughs> I wanted to give to others what I had always wanted myself and had gotten before I entered the church. At the same time, I began to reflect upon what it was that I had back in high school, what it was I had received in college and in seminary. And that's when I stumbled upon one of the writings of one of my favorite authors, and that is the late, great John Henry Cardinal Newman. He wrote and delivered a university sermon number five, way back in 1821, before he had become Catholic, simply entitled, Personal Influence, The Means of Propagating the Truth. Now, in this sermon, Newman looks into how it's possible that down through the centuries, the church has confronted so many opponents, so many obstacles, and yet faithful to its own principles, has grown and prospered often in spite of the weaknesses of the members, what is it that caused such a miraculous growth? He said, it's not just accountable in terms of miracles or the visible structures of the hierarchy. And thus he concludes, and I quote, what I conceive to be the real method by which the influence of spiritual principles is maintained in this world, I would propose whether the influence of truth in the world at large does not arise from the personal influence of those who are commissioned to teach it. And then listen to this final statement. The truth has been upheld in the world, not as a system, not by books, not by argument, nor by temporal power, but by the personal influence of people who are at once the teachers and the patterns of the truth they teach. This, of course, resonates with what the grandfather of the new evangelization once said in Evangelii Nunciandi, on evangelization in the modern world, Blessed Paul VI said way back in 1975, modern people listen more willingly to witnesses than the teachers. And if they listen to teachers, it is only because they are witnesses. So you're not just bearing, you're not just teaching truths in some kind of timeless and abstract way. You are also sharing the truths that you're teaching in terms of how you have learned them yourself and what illumination they have brought to you. I think this is crucial for us to understand why the new evangelization actually is reinforced by a Catholic university aware of its true Catholic identity. Several years ago, Pope Benedict came to America 
and addressed Catholic educators at the Catholic University of America, in which he stated, education is integral to the mission of the church to proclaim the good news. And that is why Catholic colleges and universities are so important to the new evangelization, close quote. He goes on to say that only in this way will they train truly Christian leaders in the different spheres of human activity. And he goes on to reference not just theology, not just philosophy, but politics, economics, science, art, journalism, the mass media, and so on. I am convinced from all of this that a basic starting point for institutions of higher learning in the Catholic Church is to fulfill the new evangelization according to their own distinctive calling, and at the same time to abide what Vatican II has imparted and to follow what John Paul Benedict and now Francis have recommended, and that is a Christocentricity, where Christ is the center of the life of the university and of the faculty and of the whole community of learning. And that is the way to at least attempt to integrate faith and reason in all of the areas of research, of study and teaching. Now, some might object and say, wait a second, evangelization is pastoral work. It is the work of focused missionaries, not faculty members. I think that's a false dichotomy for a variety of reasons. First of all, most Catholic colleges and universities like ours are residential. And so what that calls for is a kind of vibrant faith community, and it also requires pastoral ministry, not as something unimportant. Secondly, the nature of research, study, and teaching so essential to the university arises from a shared hunger for the truth, and it must accord with what is true. A third point, every university recognizes that they are responsible for forming the leaders who are going to go out and hopefully transform the culture, as we are so fond of saying. But this commitment to other people, this commitment to the culture requires more than instruction. It requires more than a major, more than a diploma. It ultimately makes sense only if people understand the meaning and purpose of life under the truth of God. And then they can also live out their own vocation in a community. Finally, I'm convinced that a university is the ideal place for forming not just students and scholars, but also disciples. For mathetes, the Greek term for disciple literally bespeaks a disciplined learner who has discovered the need for disciplined study, balance with disciplined prayer, and that sort of social concord with others who are following the truth and discovering the light of the world. What else can take the place of faith in the application of reason? Where else can research and intellectual growth coincide with the spiritual and moral values that make us whole as much as we find them actualized by a Catholic university? And so this is why I am convinced that not only does the new evangelization fit into Catholic higher education, I think it fits best in a Catholic university where students will discover that they're not just called to good grades, but to greatness, to holiness, as well as to ministry. Now, in conclusion, I'd like to refer to an article that just came out a couple of days ago. Perhaps you've seen it online. It was published 
by our Sunday visitor, Newsweekly, which many parishes here in town carry. And it kind of echoes what we heard from Cardinal Newman. It's entitled Apostolate of Friendship. What it actually goes on to chronicle is what happened here in Franciscan University back in the 1990s. And I was interviewed along with many others for this particular article entitled Apostolate of Friendship. Because back in the 90s, when I first got here, a number of students began to arrive, undergraduates as well as graduates. And over the course of the next 25 years, we had about 45 of them end up living with my family. And my own kids saw them as older siblings. You know, men like Curtis Martin, who came to stay for us for a month, Tim Gray for two years, Jeff Cavins for several weeks, Marcus Grodi as well. And the story recounts of how you know, Curtis Martin, along with Tim and me and other students, began to brainstorm not only about Emmaus Road as a publishing house, but about Focus. And so Focus was sort of launched here in Steubenville, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. In our basement, in fact, the night before we were on EWTN together. And Curtis enjoys recounting that because we didn't know what we were going to be talking about on Mother Angelic Alive, and I just blurted out, we're going to announce the launching of Focus. And so we did. And we had just had midterms, and my students did so poorly offered extra credit if they came to the Ramada Inn in Weirton and heard four talks, two by Curtis, two by me, on getting into focus, the new evangelization for the 21st century. And come they did. And just three months ago, I was able to address almost 500 focus missionaries for two days, for several hours, and Curtis asked me to do for them what we had shared together, and that was to give a series of lectures on a Catholic worldview, a kind of biblical Weltanschauung, how to see the world through the lenses of the liturgy, as well as the Old and New Testament read from the heart of the church. Jeff Cavins also came here after leaving the pastorate and taking his master's degree. And then we tapped him to teach a course or two as well, while he developed the great adventure and went on to be the founder of what is it called? Life on the Rock. Yeah, that EWTN program. Marcus Grodi also founded the Journey Home and the Coming Home Network here. But other students, they just go down the list. Peter Murphy, who is now the director of the new evangelization for the USCCB. Jason Effort was interviewed. Chris Stefanik, Father Michael Gately took me for several classes and other colleagues too. Father Donald Calloway was also here. So we were watching this spiritual ferment in the lives of really smart students who were more than smart, they were prayerful, they were devout. Chris Paget was here, Mike Cirilla, I remember him driving me to the airport many times. Ron Bolster, James Pauley, Drake McAllister, and a guy named Bob Rice, perhaps these names are familiar. Congressman Jeff Fortenberry, Tom Nash of EWTN, Patrick Coffin of Catholic Answers, uh, Sister John Dominic, Zoe Romanowski, and we could go on. Matthew Kelly used to sit in all my classes, and we would take long walks in the neighborhood. But it wasn't just me. It was Father Dan. It was Alan Schreck. It was Regis Martin. It was Mark Maravalli. It was all of my colleagues, and not just theology, but philosophy as well. We were no longer the College of Students, but we were now Franciscan University. We had graduate programs. We were enlarging a vision. We were broadening our horizons, and in the process, lives were being changed, and not just in the lives of our students. Three different daughter schools have developed. Perhaps you know of Ave Maria. Our vice president went on to take the vision and the lessons he learned from here to be the president there for practically a decade. Another friend of mine, Tom Hamill, moved his family from British Columbia to spend a few years here. Instead, he spent a few days and then realized that God was calling him 
to establish a Catholic school. And so he went back to Vancouver and established Redeemer Pacific University, which was the first Catholic school in that area. And it's thriving now. Derry Conley came here to visit. He was in the last row at the noon mass. And that's when the Lord showed him the vision of what has now become John Paul the Great Catholic University. You come to study, you come to worship, you come and experience the community. I remember one month before we moved here in the summer of 1990, we were attending mass at our parish in Joliet, and the people right behind us were singing almost as loud as Kimberly. And at the sign of peace, they shook our hands more heartily than any parishioners would normally do. And so afterwards, we said the prayer of Thanksgiving. We turned around and introduced ourselves to John and Barbara Halber, who then invited us out to lunch. And when we went out to lunch, John couldn't contain himself. He's like, I am now on fire for Christ. I am now excited about being Catholic. He said, you've got to go to a place someday called the Franciscan University of Steubenville. And I bit my tongue. <laughs> He went on to recount how he had gone to the commencement as an atheist because his nephew was graduating and what he heard changed his life. He heard Father Michael. He heard the TORs. He got to know the Franciscans and in about 48 hours, his life was redirected. I let him go on and on until finally I said, in a couple of days, we'll pack up a mo our, our moving van and we're moving out to Steubenville and his jaw <laughs> dropped. We are privileged here, and yet at the same time, we are challenged not just to get smug and self-congratulatory about whatever God has done in the past with our attempts. It's God and his grace, and to him be the glory. But I would say, if we are passionately Catholic in a true and honest way, that is going to require us to be not only academically excellent, but rigorous in our scholarship. To study properly is going to enhance our prayer, but to pray properly is not going to in any way exempt us from hard study, it's going to motivate us to go back and study harder and learn truth more deeply and to share it more generously and to allow the virtue and the holiness of God's Spirit to grow in our lives and to reach others as well. By now, I think you realize that the new evangelization, in my understanding, fits like a hand in a glove when it comes to Catholic higher education in general and Franciscan University in particular, but I want to conclude just on one last personal note because we've been talking about these names that are quite familiar to you, but I want to mention some names that are probably not as familiar to you because I made some calls this afternoon to my own kids. I said, who transformed your life the most? Jeremiah said, Professor Gaston. Hannah said, Dr. Holmes. Gabriel said, Professor John Coleman in math who taught him the Fibonacci sequence and the golden ratio. Joseph said, Sanford and Cirilla, and my oldest son, Mike, said, Hildebrand. This is what is so special about this place. It's mentoring, it's formation, but it's also transformation. God bless you. Um, thank you, uh, especially to the organizers, to Dr. Sanford and uh, Dr. Simonton, and, um, and to Dr. Hahn for the wonderful uh, lecture, and especially for Bishop Monforton and our Father President for being here. Um, I'll keep my reflection brief and uh, short. I know you want uh, time for questions and uh, interaction with Dr. Hahn. Um, as, I, as I understand it, uh, what I hear Dr. Hahn saying are, are a few, I'd say about three key things. Um, first is that, of course, as you just heard, the new evangelization isn't only uh, about personal and especially initial conversion. Uh, I think this is so important for, for Catholic universities to understand um, 
and, and to be devoted, as we often say around here, of course, to ongoing conversion. Um, why? Because we want to be involved. We're in the part of the church that needs to be involved in forming the Catholic mind to go out and promote the common good and, and shape a healthy culture. Um, but if we only think of this as sort of an interior movement, uh, and especially a one-time thing, um, we can't go out and do that. And so this leads, I think, to his second point, which is that the Catholic University uh, is a servant of the church, but isn't, um, you know, a, isn't, doesn't have the same mission as a parish or as a retreat center. Um, I think this is especially important, um, not only for us professors here, but for our students. I, I often think of Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis's great essay on learning in wartime, um, and, and where he's examining the, what is the value of learning when the world is going crazy. You know, when there's a war going on. And I think that our students often feel this way, right? Um, you, you feel like, listen, our culture sometimes, it just feels like it's going crazy. And you want to get out there and you want to fight for what's right and for what's true. And I love seeing that. Um, and, and yet, here's the thing. Is it worth spending time studying when you can be involved in, you know, a dozen good other extracurricular activities? I think the answer here is yes. The answer is Yes. That's why I'm often urging you to, to minimize your, your other commitments, to devote yourself to study. Why? Well, because if you don't, you're going to be like, you know, um, someone with a machine gun and they want to be a soldier and they go out there, but they haven't been trained how to use it, right? You're not going to be effective. You're not going to be effective in the way that you can if you, if you, if you truly study your discipline and become excellent at what you're doing in order to understand uh, those with whom you disagree in the, in the culture before you engage them. You're just not effective until you understand first. And that's, this is a place where we can do that, where we can study the works of people who disagree with us and, and charitably engage them. But again, make sure we understand them before we engage them. We don't want to uh, just be these angry people on the internet, right? You've seen these people that are just typing, typing, typing all day long, and you think, what are you doing? Are you still in your pajamas, right? Um, and um, and what, you don't... You just, we don't want to be cynical. We don't want to be reactionary in that sort of way. We want to be forming good arguments. We want to be engaging with the best that there is rather than um, sort of, um, you know, caricaturing our opponents and those that we disagree with on important matters. And so the third thing that I hear Dr. Hahn saying is that Franciscan is importantly equipped for this charge. Um, he talks especially about the mentorship of faculty and staff, and, and I, think, uh, I think he would agree, again, not, and not only in spiritual matters, but intellectually, helping to shape the Catholic mind, a conversion of the whole person, uh, to help, help us um, think well and live well and be um, devoted in our faith. Um, but I, I think some of some other things here too, right? The, the core, the way that this, the way that the new core at Franciscan University, for instance, helps us. The way that it gives us a broad-based education, a liberal arts education. This is part of the formation. It's not. It's not an act, an accident. It's not incidental to what we do. It's it's um, it's crucial. Why? Well, as Augustine and other people remind us, what's the point of a liberal arts education? It's to liberate us. Right? It's to liberate us, and from what? Well, Augustine often, often stresses, it's to liberate us from materialism, from going around our daily lives and thinking that this is all there is, right? Whereas the study, study uh, in the sciences, study in philosophy, helps us to understand, with this, and, and the arts helps us understand, no, there's a transcendent reality that we have to constantly be aware of. And, and it, it sort of breaks us out of that daily routine, the monotony of just thinking about what's all around us. So even the way I think our, our curriculum is structured can help us in, this, in this, um, this task, our task at Franciscan, and as it relates to the, to the new evangelization. 
Um, so I want to raise two, two different issues that maybe Dr. Hahn um, could comment on, and, and we, of course, want to hear from you as well. And the first one is this. I wonder, um, I, I've often thought that, uh, that the Catholic, as Catholics, we often, and especially in the sciences, I, I sometimes worry that we have a sort of Galileo complex. What do I mean by this? That we're very worried, right? I mean, you know, first of all, as, as many of us know who have studied the Galileo affair, almost everything everyone knows says they know about it is false, right? Um, but, but I think we've still been formed by it. I think we, have, we sometimes have a Catholic intellectual culture that is very much formed by it. And I worry that we're worried about interaction, particularly in the sciences. So you mentioned, it's easy maybe for those of us in philosophy and in, in theology. How does this relate to the, our social scientists and to our natural scientists? How do we evo- avoid compartmentalization is what I wonder. For instance, how do we avoid reducing, how do we avoid just being Christians who happen to do science and how do we become Christian scientists who, who are uh, sort of living integrated lives where, where our faith isn't just this separate thing, that, like we do our faith over here and then we do our bench science over here. How do we integrate them? Um, with, and, and in a winsome way, not in a naive way. We know we've obviously seen people in our culture sometimes do that in a naive way. And so how do we not reduce the interaction, especially perhaps in the sciences, um, to just personal witness, right? And say, well, I'm a Christian scientist and all that means is that I do science sometimes, and then I, and I'm a nice person, and I sometimes witness to my secular colleagues. Or to reduce it sometimes to, say, service projects. There's got, those things are necessary, and they're important. In fact, they might lead to, to great personal witness. But, but is there a way we can integrate um, the, the social sciences and the sciences in a, in a more unified way and to teach our students to think in a more holistic way? That's my first question. And my second one is this, is as a university as a whole, how do we avoid... Uh, as our, as our culture seems to, seems to worsen at times, how do we avoid being reactionary as, as a larger community? How do we avoid putting on events that are, that are say, only geared toward, um, you know, uh, let me tell you how the culture is crazy in this respect. And then the next lecture is, let me tell you how the culture is crazy in the next respect. How do we, how do we have a positive vision that we're uplifting there's definitely cultural critique that has to take place. It's integral to what we do, and that dialogue with people who disagree with us is, is, is integral. But is there also a way that we can avoid sort of just being, and is there a way that Christian universities in general can avoid um, being just sort of, I don't know, anti-current culture? How do we promote a positive and healthy vision of, say, an integrated Christian life that's winsome and, and just doesn't feel uh, like we're just being reactionary and negative? So those are the two things I, I, I wanted to start with, and then, we, of course, we encourage your thoughts and and questions. Thank you so much. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.